Before we start this episode, I wanted to let you know that I will be in conversation with the brilliant author and broadcaster Candice Brathwaite at The Lyric in Soho on the 1st of November, talking all about the themes of this podcast and more. You can book tickets at fane.co.uk forward slash Pandora. It's funny because when neurotypical people describe autistic people, one of the things that annoys me the most is when they say we lack empathy, we lack theory of mind, we lack the ability to imagine how others are feeling. When it's actually that it's difficult for anyone with any given neurotype to imagine themselves into the head of someone with a very different one. You're listening to Doing It Right with me, Pandora Sykes, a podcast where I talk to experts about the myths, anxieties and trends of modern life. There's no such thing as the right life, but what might we be getting wrong? In this series, I'll be exploring the ins and outs of sex, self-care and sadness and lobbing big questions at my guests like, could a four-day work week ever really take off? Why is society getting lonelier? And what would a fair justice system look like? This is a podcast that asks what can we do to live life better? Not just for ourselves, but for everyone. What do you know about autism? Nisha Dolan is the author of the best-selling novel Exciting Times, one of my favourite debuts of last year and long-listed for multiple prizes, including the Women's Prize for Fiction and the Dylan Thomas Prize. Nisha is autistic and has ADHD, and in her journalism for titles including the Sunday Times, the Irish Times and the Irish Independent, where she has a weekly column, she regularly explores what it means to be neurodiverse and what the holistic, those of us without autism, misunderstand about autism. Nisha and I spoke in July when we discussed the problem with women being appraised according to how likeable they are and the impact that such a metric has on neurodiverse women, the danger of a shared social understanding, whereby you assume that everyone understands and adheres to the same social cues as you, and why we need to talk more about hidden disabilities. Nisha also teaches me about ask culture versus guest culture, and why living in an ask culture would benefit us all, the missing stare problem, and what it means to triage the boundaries. Nisha is a fascinating voice, and this is one of my favourite conversations I've had across the series. I start by asking Nisha, what is the biggest myth about autism? The idea that it's overdiagnosed and attached lightly to people or traits that it shouldn't be which is untrue for a number of reasons. First of all, it is enormously difficult to get an autism diagnosis for anyone. And the more you diverge from the stereotype, the harder it gets. So it might be that in some tiny sections of the world, maybe a white boy born to affluent parents might have a relatively easy time getting a diagnosis as a child, but the more factors of your identity diverge from that, the less access you have to that diagnosis, the more likely you are to just grow up believing that there's something fundamentally wrong with you. And I think as well, it just stems from this scarcity mindset that comes ultimately from 
the ableist idea that disabled people are phonies trying to rob the rest of the world from resources, which is linked closely to benefits grounded rhetoric more broadly. And not only is that a horrendous belief to have about any diagnosis of any disability, but in the case of autism, it's also just like, what are you on? What money do you think the UK government gives me for being autistic? Like, you'll be gravely disappointed if you look for an autism diagnosis thinking that it will enable you to rob the hardworking taxpayer, right? But that rhetoric of suspicion against disabled people, combined with the idea that especially groups not traditionally seen as autistic should just suck up pain and difference. I think all that drives that idea that everyone's autistic nowadays, which just is not true. You've spoken before about how that throwaway line, oh, he's so autistic, is damaging to our understanding of autism, as well as offensive to autists themselves. Why is it assumed that all autistic people lack empathy and vice versa, that anyone who is perceived to lack empathy must be autistic. The idea that there's an innate and universal way of expressing empathy hurts our discourse in so many ways, not just along the lines of neurology, also just culturally. There are many cultures where it's not as polite to look people in the eyes constantly. So that kind of thing is contingent. And then when people don't understand that and link their own culturally specific way of showing connection to others with being a good person and pathologize any other way of doing it. I think that's when we get that kind of stigma. And then obviously it's linked to ableism that that stigma expresses itself via calling people autistic for not doing it. You've written a lot about how you've experienced and navigated your autism, ADHD and dyspraxia as a published author and writer, but also as a 20-something woman during lockdown. One such piece you wrote was on the importance of routine and how the disruption of one during the pandemic was more than just an inconvenience for you. Could you read a little bit of that piece you wrote for The Guardian where you talk about the importance of your routine? Not being able to buy a flat white during lockdown sounds like such a ridiculous thing to complain about. But it's not about the coffee, it's about having a certainty from which things can flow. Because so much of the world is overwhelming to you when you're autistic. Being able to put some things on autopilot is a huge relief and lets you make decisions in a reasonable time frame. So buying a flat white tells me I can then look at emails or write a thousand words. When one thing goes, the whole ecosystem goes. But it is objectively ridiculous to complain about a coffee. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of routine in order to manage your neurological conditions? I just like very carefully construct things that will then remind me to do other things. So the implements for watering my plants are next to my plants. And then all my going out stuff exists in the same tiny box in my room so that I cannot pick up my keys without also remembering to pick up my portable charger and stuff like that where I have to put a lot of thought into it. And eventually it all becomes automated, like learning a language, but it's always a delicate structure. So like a Jenga tower, you know, if, if you take the wrong one out, then I, I am again a helpless ball on the floor. You found what happened, for example, when something at the start of your day, it, from which many other things subsequently follow, when that thing is taken away, how it can just throw the whole thing off. And in lockdown, that was your daily flat white, wasn't it? 
What happened when your flat white no longer became that first pit stop in your routine? Yeah, so a terrifying number of things were linked to it. Like, first of all, it meant brushing teeth at a certain time of day because I'm a stickler about not having coffee too soon after brushing my teeth because then it's likely that they will stain because the enamel is still somewhat raw from the exposure to the harsh chemicals that you use to clean it. However, if I leave my coffee too late, then I will start experiencing withdrawal symptoms, which will then make me less able to do anything, including getting my coffee because I'll be too headachy and tired to do so. So I need to make sure that I brush my teeth by a certain time in order to then have the coffee 30 minutes after that certain time. Also, in between brushing the teeth and getting the coffee, I need to get dressed to go and get the coffee, which is, again, a useful thing to have at the start of one's day because otherwise clothes just spill into each other. I'm not a big loungewear person at all. I think actually people who were always self-employed or freelance have probably leaned less into that kind of thing than people for whom working from home it's something they expect to be doing for the next couple of years at most. Like I've always had that need to dress nicely for myself. So that's baked into that as well. And if I go get the flat white in a nice place, I'm going to be more motivated and likely to remember that. Also the walk, because walking is vital for managing any kind of sensory processing difference for me at least like I'm sure any other form of exercise would do as well but walking is just the easiest one to automate into my day because you can walk in order to do other stuff whereas a jog for instance is a much more discreet thing that you'll need to remember in its own right whereas if I have a list of things that I need to remember in order to like go and walk then the walk will be baked into it so the walk was baked into the coffee as well and then that walk also gets my dopamine going which makes it easier on an ADHD front as well and so on and then like once I'm sat down and I've had this signal to myself that my brain is on then I think it's not so much that I could only answer emails after I'd had the coffee as that I have a strong tendency towards binaristic thinking that I think is common if you've got some kind of neurological difference because often what that means is that concepts map themselves onto other concepts a lot more readily than they do for a neurotypical brain so everything is implication for everything else so it's hard for me to absorb the principle that it's good to answer emails when you get them and not take that to the maximum extent and feel obliged to answer them at all times so the way I managed that was by going emails after coffee and before whatever I do after that and I realized that, that was a very extensive rant but I think it addresses how much can be innocuously baked into a small London extravagance. It totally illustrates. You kindly gave me a quote for a piece that I wrote for WeTransfer about breaking up with my routine or disrupting it and it really highlighted for me how playing around with routine is not an option everyone has. The architecture of your day, of your routine, is extremely and precisely calibrated and it's very fragile. Yeah, I think the interesting thing about neurological difference is it's not that there's a given exact brain that all people with any given neurological condition have that you can describe based on diagnosis. It's that there's a sufficient level of difference and then you group people with similar differences together, if that makes sense. So sometimes you're what's called hypersensitive to input compared to neurotypical people. So a noise that someone else might find mildly annoying might be excruciating for me. But sometimes you're hyposensitive, so you don't notice at all something that neurotypical people would notice. And I think that has massive implications for 
the kind of self-care that maybe a neurotypical person wouldn't have to think about as much. Like I'm very bad at noticing when I'm hungry, when I'm thirsty, when I need to move my limbs, that kind of thing. So I think that kind of stuff where if I got a, a bodily creak or noise that told me to do it, I wouldn't have to make it such a cognitive task to remember to. That's especially important to get right in the routine, especially because if you got that stuff wrong, then your brain's going to be working less well overall. And then that ruins everything. The way we socialised during lockdown, the general conversation about lockdown was that online Zoom based socialising and partying was a lesser form of social activity, tolerable, sometimes barely that and nothing like the real thing. But you found an enormous relief in this suspension of socialising, didn't you? How does the narrative around a social life fail to consider neurodiverse people, do you think? I think to an extent, that's one of those ones where it really depends on the condition. And I think as well on the overlapping conditions. Like I have a number of friends who just have ADHD and aren't autistic, who tend to have a much higher level of need than I do for casual varied social contact so I think for them they might maybe have more in common with that narrative than I would but equally things like executive functioning issues like I think it's not that I don't agree it's good to be on time when you can and so forth but a lot of what we're taught about manners assumes malice and doesn't allow for things being just empirically more difficult for some people than for others like in order to be 100% assuredly on time for things I will need to be doing nothing but preparing for that event for several hours preceding it because I'm so easily distracted and consumed in things that interest me that like if it's an hour to go and I start working on a piece I might then look at my watch and find it four hours gone so in practice what might be a 15 minute tube journey to a coffee could quickly become for me as several hours out of my day before the event actually starts. So then if I'm late for it, it mightn't necessarily imply the degree of callousness as someone who can just set an alarm and then leave at the right time would be showing if they were late. So yeah, I think that lack of understanding can be an issue. I think as well though, we're just so keen to categorize and set rules of engagement for really every kind of relationship when needs are always individual and I think that's an example of how neurodiversity really is for everyone because while neurodivergence signifies a certain level of difference such that a diagnostic label might help you understand yourself everyone has slightly different social needs to the next person so like for me for instance the friendships of mine that tend to work best are the ones where someone might send me a voice note and I might reply three weeks later while I'm walking in the park and then they might reply two weeks later and it makes no difference to us compared to if it were 10 seconds before or after clearly I'm a bad person to be friends with someone who needs a reply right there and then but that doesn't make them a bad person it just makes them maybe not suitable best friend for me or me for them. I think understanding that relationships don't have to look a certain way, whatever kind of relationship they are, is something that would really help everyone.
you've written a lot about how you've had to learn models of behavior that do not come naturally. And that must have been quite exhausting and at times infuriating. I think what has helped me understand this actually is something that the author didn't relate to neurodivergence at all, but I can't remember the title of the piece, but there was an article in, I think, The Guardian about ask cultures versus guest cultures. The idea being that ask cultures are ones where you don't lead up to a dance with things before you request or state them. You just say it. And so when you say it, it carries less weight. Whereas a guest culture is one where before, say, making a request, you would first feel things out, try to get a sense of whether the person was likely to say yes. So then when you do ask, it's with the implication that your understanding is the person is very likely to say yes. And so you're asking it carries considerably more weight. Obviously, it differs from person to person as well. So I, as an Irish person, am an ask person who grew up in a guest culture. And that gap can be exhausting because guest people are like, why haven't you noticed all these hints that I've been dropping? And especially if you've offended them, like they're waiting for you to ask them what's wrong because they think that they have staged you to understand that you've made some error. Whereas I'm just like merrily in my ask bubble. Like I assume all as well, since I've not been told to the contrary. And I think ideally that should just be a shared effort to bridge. There's nothing wrong with either style. They both have their merits. Ask culture can spare a lot of ambiguity. Guest culture can spare a lot of hurt feelings. But when the people in guest culture don't understand that they are operating solely in guest culture and hold people who are operating in ask culture to those standards, they're going to assume malice where there is none. They're going to assume that you're being obtuse when you're just on a different communicative wavelength. So I think more good faith and more shared communicative effort would really help to bridge that. And now a quick word from my sponsor, Zen Move, an online nationwide law firm that puts the well-being of its clients first. Moving house is stressful. For those lucky enough to be getting on the property ladder, there's a lot to get your head round. Contracts and deadlines and oodles of legal jargon. So why not eliminate that stress with Zen Move and their positive approach to conveyancing? The key is in the name. Their smooth, friendly and clutter-free approach will ensure that no one tears their hair out or forgets to feed the cat while wading through paperwork. Head over to zenmove.co.uk to get a quote and to discuss your move the Zen way. As you say, even if you're a guest person in Ask World or an Ask person in the guest world, just knowing that people are different on that front so having that awareness when you're communicating with one another, um, particularly when you're talking about autism, so that you're not constantly having to shapeshift into someone else's idea of what's acceptable. Because a lot of your writing made me realise how much of the this is great, this is gross popular discourse fails to consider neurodiverse communication and I often think about I once emailed you and I said so sorry for the email chaser I know email chasers are ghastly and you said actually thank you because if something isn't top of my inbox I forget about it entirely and 
email chasing is the ultimate neurodiverse accommodation tool. I found that really fascinating and it made me wonder how many other communication tools I just accepted without thinking about ways in which people with various neurological traits might like to do stuff differently. Do you actively try and put forward different ways to communicate? How much of it is basically you shape-shifting and how much of it is you set, trying to posit different ways of doing things? The way that I spell out and explain difference most often is just when I'm going to be working with someone consistently and I think it will make it easier for both of us. So anyone who's going to be editing me over a long period of time, I just say up front, I love notes, don't sugarcoat, don't feel obliged to do the feedback sandwich. Like it just makes it a longer email for me to read and does not change my psychological reaction to the criticism, which will be regardless of how you package it. Okay, this is a criticism. Do I think it is valid? If so, how do I address it? If not, how do I reply explaining why I disagree? Like, I, so I think, there's a lot of kind of built-in stuff like that on the assumption that all authors are sensitive flowers that actually makes it a lot more work for me because then I have to deal with the sensitive flower communicative layers on top of the actual function of editing my work. And yeah, Chase is similarly because I can see why someone who's the stereotypical scatterbrained author might be offended by the insinuation that they should think about things besides poems but yeah for me it usually is just that it got lost among my emails about the package that I really need to pick up at the post office or like something equally mundane I'm absolutely not being sidetracked from higher matters most of the time when people remind me to reply to a work email but then I do sometimes like to think that when I'm the first person to ask for something it will make it easier for the next person to, especially because like a diagnosis of pretty much anything in the area of neurodivergence is so difficult and emotionally draining and time consuming to obtain that I'd really like to get to a place where you could just ask for accommodations and not need to explain why you need them because if they're reasonable, they're reasonable. Like. I don't think it's fair that I should get something because I happen to have officially diagnosed ASD and someone else who might equally benefit from that thing doesn't just because they don't, if it's something that it doesn't cost any additional time to provide. So for instance, when I'm attending an event, I always want to know what's the dress code? If there isn't one, what do you understand people usually wear to these things? What did they wear last year? Can I see pictures? I've never quite asked that one, but like, honestly, I've Googled. And that's yet another ask culture, guest culture thing where I can equally see why they wouldn't include that kind of thing in a work email by default, because I can imagine a neurotypical person who's like, who the fuck are these people telling me what to wear at an event? I'll wear what I want, yada, yada. <laughs> but for me, like, it, it's always going to be a decision. I don't have anything that I just throw on because I like clothes. I like thinking about clothes. So if I have an idea of what people will be wearing, I'm not going to feel bound to wear that too. It's just going to give me some kind of ballpark for where my outfit will then be situated. And I can try to blend in if that's what I want. I can try to stand out if that's what I want. But that kind of thing, like 
it doesn't cost any employer any additional effort to say this is what people will be wearing and i hope that by requesting that and maybe explaining that it's from a neurodivergent standpoint and not just that i'm weird it makes it easier for someone else to ask a slightly awkward question like that without just getting the stock British reply of like, whatever you're comfortable in. And then they show up in what they're comfortable in and it's completely different to what everyone else is wearing. And often the answer for what you're comfortable in will be what everyone else is wearing. And like, I have no idea why we can't just admit that. That reminds me of Bridget Jones turning up in the bunny costume to the Tarts right. party. So I'm, I'm thinking yeah. of you turning up at literary soirees in whatever makes you comfortable being a nice little bunny leotard. <laughs> no, absolutely, you're not far off. Like, I think I tweeted about this incident, but I was invited to the Prima Donna Festival in Suffolk and I forgot to ask about the dress code. So my default option was a black lace mob wife dress and four inch black heels on this thing held on a farm where everyone else is in like linen and I think know, I did what, see a picture of they... that it's quite Lady Gaga vibes yeah yeah exactly so like I think that kind of thing where when people say whatever you're comfortable in they're assuming a shared social understanding that I might not necessarily have that's a really good way of putting it and I think what you were saying as well about that a lot of what you're talking about is actually objectively reasonable for neurotypical people as well you you say why do we place such emphasis on looking people in the eye it's really intense when you don't know someone that well it just struck me that there are just these ways of doing things which have been entrenched for so long but that doesn't mean they actually make any sense yeah no completely and i think it's not just disability that would benefit as an axis from being more considerate and more precise about expectations. It's also just that general homogenized publishing and media, Southern English culture that I think doesn't itself realize that it's not universal. So many of my misgivings about what to wear to an event, what to say to people, how to conduct myself, I'm sure are shared by anyone who's not from that cultural background or anyone who's different in any way. And when you think about it, it's really a minority who do have a fluid and innate understanding of those things. It's just that within their field, they're a majority. So, yeah, I think shaking things up just makes space for all sorts of inclusiveness. Another thing I found myself furiously nodding my head to is your analysis on the pressure on women to be likeable. And it reminds me a little of the obsession with niceness, which I see as platitudes and smiles and all surface versus kindness, which I think is about action. And it's something of depth that's not instantly visible. Do you think we need to overhaul our value system entirely? When we prioritize social comfort, we might say we're doing it in a general sense, but it often actually serves the interests of those in power. So niceness actually relies on a lack of theory of mind and the lack of understanding of the broader picture of things where the immediate comfort of you and those around you, and sometimes not even of those around you, comes to seem paramount when it's not. I think as well, it, if you're someone who, like me, just finds a lot of the 
associated communication exhausting it's not nice at all like i think any etiquette guide even written by the stuffiest person it's funny because when neurotypical people describe autistic people one of the things that annoys me the most is when they say we lack empathy we lack theory of mind we lack the ability to imagine how others are feeling when it's actually that it's difficult for anyone with any given neurotype to imagine themselves into the head of someone with a very different one i think autistic people tend to be better at doing that than neurotypical people are at imagining us simply because we have to more we have to adjust more and in doing so we have to project how a neurotypical mind works whereas neurotypical people usually have to do very little imagining of how our minds work so I think if it were more embedded in our code of how to be a considerate person that you need to accept that maybe someone else will think very differently and you mightn't be able to intuit what they want you might have to ask even if it goes against every grain of this guest culture I think that assumption of possible difference could actually serve us a lot better than a forced and perhaps false similarity. I think that's a helpful philosophy generally, whatever your neurology, if more of us asked, not guessed. As women in particular, I think you're taught to approach things quite generally with a lot of prevarication, that it can be dangerous to ask outright for the things you want. Yeah, I think those ambiguities and those gaps are often where the space for abuse of power opens up as well like all those horrifying narratives of the Weinstein figures where it's not that at any given stage it was clear what was going to happen it's all those encroachments just on the line of what's okay to say no to and what might not be and I, I think like are you familiar with the concept of the missing stare problem I don't think so tell me about it it's the idea of when you're in a house and a guest is at the stairs, you warn them about the missing steps so that they don't trip over it. But then supposing a guest comes into the house and you're not there, they will trip over the step, the step that everyone who's adjusted to the house knows to just move by. So it's come up a lot in post Me Too discussions about figures who people in the know in a given community just know to avoid if you're a woman but then supposing someone knew someone with less power someone who's less apt to pick up on hints to avoid that person they're still going to run into into problems with the missing step person so yeah that that kind of unspoken communication the masking and code switching that you have to do is a constant and you once said that you felt pressured to tell people that you were autistic in case you came across as blunt, which is something that there is such an issue with when it comes to women. Men are allowed, or especially if they're in positions of power, expected to be blunt, to be curt, to be to the point. But it's something that you feel the need to apologize for and explain how much of that code switching do you think is because you are female definitely the communicative code that i held myself to is heavily gendered and it annoys me hugely 
every few months with the usual goldfish memory of Twitter. There's one of those discussions of like, women, stop saying sorry in emails. Because it's like, okay, I'll stop saying sorry in emails. And then this random man will think I'm a bitch. Like, there's a reason that we develop these norms. And it also assumes that the male one is better when I actually think it is good to say sorry for causing someone a minor inconvenience, as long as you restrict your apology to the minor inconvenience. Like if I say Pandora, sorry for the slightly late reply, I have not said Pandora, sorry for murdering your family in front of you. So I'm going to assume that you don't actually think I'm feeling that level of remorse and my remorse is in fact restricted to what I have directly apologized for. Like it's mad. But yeah, so I think definitely the model that I follow is female rather than male, but I think I'm less well placed to to say whether the cognitive tax and I suppose the feeling of a gap between how I would naturally express myself and how I actually express myself is greater for me than it would be for a male autistic person. Like for instance, I've noticed that all my male friends know so much about football, even if they don't get it at all. And I'm able to very competently navigate London social scene without this knowledge. Whereas I think if I were male, I would need to have it. So I'm sure there are all sorts of things that men need to have on their radar, whether or not they actually need it, that I don't. And you argue for autism to be seen as a neurological trait rather than a medical condition, don't you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like, I think it's really one of those things where we're looking for a universal ideal where there just isn't one. And a lot of our social anxiety gets projected onto that because we imagine this world where we all settle on the right way to write an email at all times. And that's just never going to happen because people are different, cultures are different, contexts are different. Like we do need to just trust our own judgment and to read other people's emails in good faith. I think you've just nailed why online communication will never be resolved for a better word because people are going to bring like they do to everything in the world radically different ideals i think i find it illustrative often to compare low-level online contact between virtual strangers to just seeing someone on the street or in a shop like a friend once said something about tinder to me that has just like lived rent-free in my mind ever since which was like when you and someone else have swiped right on each other, that's just the equivalent of that moment of eye contact on a street and the slight nod. Only on the street, nothing comes of it. And what Tinder does is harness technology to get you to nod point and then the ability to do something about it. So I think similarly, an auto reply to an email is like if you're trying to get someone's attention in a pub and it's the like slight head turn from a bartender that you know to mean I'll get to you later. Because the human brain really isn't built to have intense, focused, purely verbal interactions with everyone all the time. There are all those little non-verbal things that, while they might be culturally and neurologically contingent, still occur in all of us that enable us to triage our contact in real life. So, yeah, I think setting things up so that those boundaries can be reflected textually is really good triaging the boundaries that's that is a great one your adoption of learned behaviors has seen you labeled as high functioning when you wrote about this for the sunday times a reader responded that you were not representative of most female autists who didn't have the ability to present as high functioning how do you feel about the idea that you are somehow attempting to speak for a broad spectrum of people or positioning yourself as an autistic poster girl, does it ever make you want to 
pull back and just say, do you know what? You can all sod off. I think it reflects the prejudices of the person in question because when a neurotypical person says something about themselves, I don't immediately conclude that they are speaking for, say, 90 to 99% of the population. We don't know exactly how many people are neurodivergent because diagnostic rates are still so low. But point being, they're able to speak for themselves because there are so many of them that it's taken as a given that it won't necessarily be true of the next person and that they're not trying to drive some broader agenda by just being true about their life. Now, it might be that because there's not as broad understanding of my neurotype that in speaking for myself, I might find it useful to invoke broader concepts. That doesn't mean that it's not. I I think a reflection of how much space the person in question is willing to give to autistic people when they conclude that I'm trying to make a totalizing statement. Because I think if people had it in their hearts that autistic people are individuals with a fully realized humanity and our own unique soul, all of us, then they would not need to compare us to each other and ask whether someone's one type of autistic or another, or whether what this person says has implications for their friend's nephew's son or whatever. When equally, if I were to diagnose someone with what's referred to as allism or as not being autistic, I could go has a pathological need for constant low-level contact in order to feel secure in their relationships, feel slighted if a stranger doesn't look them in the eye, can't remember anything. <laughs> like the way that neurotypicals seem to autistic people could just as easily be described in terms of incompetencies. But at the same time, we have to live our lives. We have to access the terms and resources and social understanding that we can to more fully participate in the world. So I think it's a very individual decision how much of that someone wants to engage with. But I think you'd rarely find a neurodiversity activist who didn't agree that the long-term aim is certainly to just have it be embedded in our broader social code and social understanding that difference is everywhere and it won't always be obvious to you and so you should always assume the best intentions and ask if you're unsure. Autism and other conditions including epilepsy, diabetes, cystic fibrosis are hidden disabilities and yet this idea that disability comes only in a wheelchair persists. Advocacy of hidden disabilities noted that there are 14 million disabled people in the UK and it's estimated that 80% of them suffer from hidden disabilities. What would you like to be redefined when it comes to how we think of disability? I think a breaking down of the division between mind and body because the mind is literally a part of the body. So outside a stereotyped visual code it's just not a cogent idea to think that I'm purely intellectually disabled because my brain controls what the rest of me does it also doesn't hold even within an understanding of disability that says only the things non-disabled people can visually identify count like the fact that I wear sunglasses in a lot of contexts that other people won't 
it is a very visible sign of disability to those in the know. But if someone doesn't have that understanding, isn't aware of the many valid reasons that sunglasses might, for whatever reason, be an accessibility tool, they'll just assume that I'm like a dumb tourist or I'm trying to be hostile or something. <laughs> so that kind of thing, like, and that's exactly what disability is, right? It's where something that you do to make the world more accessible disadvantages you because it's not to my advantage to be seen as any of those things just for wearing something that makes life a little bit easier for me. But that kind of thing can be incredibly helpful for someone with what's perceived as an invisible disability. But then equally, I think, as is often the case, there are some conversations that need to happen within a community and some that need to happen outside it. So within disabled communities, there's what's called lateral ableism, where people with one condition are perfectly capable of discriminating against people with another where the accessibility implications the accessibility implications are very different so you know most of the time throughout my life i won't need to check if something has audio captions or i won't need to check whether a tube station that i'm going to meet someone at is wheelchair accessible or so forth there's no reason that my being autistic will necessarily make me more attuned to those access needs equally a neurotypical wheelchair user might need actively to think about how my social communication needs might be different. But that's the kind of thing that I think disabled people are better at calling ourselves and each other out on. And what isn't helpful is when non-disabled people decide to make themselves the police of that. So stuff like I might use a disabled bathroom because I have some kind of sensory issue with the normal one like normal the biggest air quotes possible to be clear where for example if the dryers are too loud like that would make that bathroom painfully like overwhelmingly painful for me to use so I might need to use the disabled one and then when I come out and I get a scowl from someone for using the wrong bathroom like that kind of thing where someone who's not even involved enough in disability to activism to know that disability mightn't always be visible as they understand it has what they imagine as the authority to take umbrage on the behalf of imagined wheelchair users who will apparently hate me for doing the heinous thing. Like, I think that kind of thing is just a bit presumptuous and unnecessary. You recently tweeted, my life in England is 45% stating that I did not mean X when I said Y, 45% apologising for not inferring Y when the other party said X, and 10% sweet relief of talking to other people who say what they mean. I wanted to end by asking you how much you use humour to both discuss and navigate your really rare position as a best-selling autistic novelist. Oh, all the time. Like, I, I think... It's like definitely not mad writing career specific or limited. Like, (laughs) I I think I have one processing tool, which is humour. And I'm very fortunate that it happens to be readily monetizable because it'd be all I've got regardless. (laughs) Like, in the same way that everything looks like a nail to a hammer, everything looks like fodder for dark Irish humour to me. So I'm sure whatever my life was like, that would be how I processed it. But I, I think as well, it is a very Irish thing because we're such a small island and as well like I I think because for so long in our history 
doing well for yourself or like even minimally surviving being less Irish like literally how you did that was by learning English was by cooperating with colonialism there is that I think suspicion that it can be really you still if and like I, I have no idea how linked that actually is to those historical perceptions that the small island thing might predominate like I, I love history so I'm always over accounting for how it still impacts our psychologies now maybe it's not the colonial stuff at all but regardless of the roots of this mentality I think for Irish people it's not even that you want to like make other people comfortable it's like to be comfortable with yourself you just can't take yourself too seriously like can't be having that well I'm profoundly grateful for your humor and for your beautiful thought-provoking writing thank you so much Nisha for coming on to doing it right thank you it's been really lovely being on that's it for this week thank you so much for listening to doing it right You can rate, review and subscribe on iTunes. And if you'd like, you can buy my book, How Do We Know We're Doing It Right? From any bookshop you like, Independent Always Better, Try Hive if you're shopping online, in which I discuss lots more of the myths and anxieties of modern life. 